I mean, Ali changed the game by introducing the whole idea that that heavyweight fighter could, you know, quote unquote, dance. Right. You know, that, you know, you went to see his fights for, you know, for grace and, you know, balletic motion. I mean, you went you went to Tyson's fights for violence. Welcome to this week's episode of Tourist Information. This week I spoke with Tom Juneau, who won the National Magazine Award twice. Um, most famously, recently, he did the interview with Mr. Rogers that was turned into the Tom Hanks movie and the wonderful documentary that came out the year before. Um, he wrote probably my f- favorite magazine uh, investigative piece about the falling man from 9-11, that iconic arresting image of the man in mid-flight who happened to be wearing an orange t-shirt, which became kind of the clue to his mystery. Uh, Juno also did a, a big feature for ESPN magazine, the late ESPN magazine, uh, about Muhammad Ali's funeral. That was extraordinary. He's just one of the best writers we have. Our conversation covered some interesting anecdotes about Donald Trump, Mr. Rogers, seeing Mr. Rogers naked before going for his regular swim, which I'm still recovering from. Um, I just don't know how anybody could recover. Oh, Jesus. Um, but this was a really fun conversation and a really great guy that I, I'm really happy we had on. This was, uh, I had a lot of notes and I did not even look at them once for this. So I hope you enjoy it half as much as I did. So you mentioned this thing that I had no idea of a relationship to Ring Magazine that infiltrated your childhood as early as any other magazine did. Yeah, I'd yeah. love to hear about that. Well, so my brother is 10 years older than I am. And he was a um, a huge boxing fan, and so was I. I mean, boxing boxing um, really was kind of our, you know, family sport. I mean, I remember like really one of the first gifts that I ever um, got was uh, a set of Rocky Marciano boxing gloves you know, from my older brother and I would just, you know, and we would box and I would go in there just windmilling like crazy, you know, sure. and, and these gloves, they were like, they were the, these gloves were like the gloves that like Dempsey used against Willard. I mean, they felt like, you know, they were, they were like, I don't know what it was. I don't know what was the padding, yeah. but it wasn't really padding. It was like, it was like wearing, you know, ground up bricks on your hands and stuff. So, but anyway, um, so I was always really into boxing and somewhere, God, you know, somewhere along the line when I was like around 13, I went with my brother to his friend Ted's house and Ted had a collection of boxing magazines from the post Marciano fifties to the pre Muhammad Ali Cassius Clay 60s. Hmm. And 
one day I went over to Ted's house and it was probably about a mile or a mile and a half from where I lived. And I put, he had a stack of, I don't know, like it was like, it was ring magazine. It was boxing illustrated. It was called boxing illustrated and wrestling news. Wow. Okay. And I put, I had this, I had like a stack of like a hundred old magazines that I carried to my house and then read religiously from, you know, from the time I was 13 and to the time I was 18 and went away to college. What was the connection you, you formed with the sport or with, did you find a fighter that you most identified with or cared about or? Well, I mean, I, I happened to grow up in, in one of the, one of the great golden, you know, eras of, of, of boxing. I mean, you know, I mean, I remember, I remember when I was a little boy, when I was five years old and we had a cleaning lady, Helen Johnson, and she came in and she asked me who I thought was going to win the fight, Sonny Liston or Cassius Clay. Wow. Huh. Yeah. And and I remember and of course, you know, you know, because I, I come from a, a family of just like, I mean, the worst prognosticators and gamblers of all time. Who did I pick? Of course, I picked Sonny Liston. You know, and, and, and the only reason I picked Sonny Liston is I did. I had no idea who he was. I just like. The fact that the word sun, you know, like the sun, like in the sky was in his name. You know, I thought he was like, a, he sounded like a nice person. So I picked Sonny Liston. And um, yeah, but boxing, boxing was, was my thing. Um, uh, it was, I, I used to go to uh, closed circuit fights with my brother and my father. We used to, um you know, we used to, to shadow box and box, you know, all the time. You know, we eventually got gloves that, you know, actually, uh, you know, you wouldn't kill each other with, which was these, you know, we had Everlast gloves and we we boxed. Uh, my brother boxed at a gym. He worked out. He, he uh, uh, boxed at the, the gym in um, Glen Cove, New York, where the Capabianco family trained, where Howard Davis trained. I went, I went, um, to the, God, the 1973 Golden Gloves finals in Madison Square Garden and saw, uh, Howard Davis, Jerry Cooney, um, you know, uh, all those, all those guys. And, um, so boxing was like a really, it was a really, really, really big deal for me. And it, interestingly enough, I mean, it was one of the, it was one of the things I started writing about um, long before I decided to be a writer. When I was in high school, I, um, you know, we had to do like a composition based on a picture. And I did something and the, and the, you know, the teacher thought I could do better. And so I rewrote it using the picture of Allie hitting the deck uh, in the first in the first Frazier fight. Mm -hmm. And I wrote it from his point of view about trying to get up at that moment. And I handed it to the teacher who read it and then immediately thought I cheated <laughs> because yeah. it was because it was good. He just didn't he didn't think that I could I could possibly write that well. And. You know, and so boxing was my thing. And then when I came to, uh, you know, when I first got out of college, um, 
I was not a writer. I was a, a salesman. I was on the road, um, but I lost that job mercifully. Where did you sell? I sold ladies' handbags. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it, it was the, it was like the family business. I, I didn't work for my dad, but my dad did it, and my brother did it. So, um, yeah, well, I, I come from a ladies' handbag you know, dynasty. And um, I know. so and, and when I came to uh, Atlanta, I mean, one of the first things that I did um, with my brother was I saw uh, I went and saw um, at Atlanta Fulton County Stadium sitting outdoors, went to a closed circuit fight. And that closed circuit fight was uh, Hearns, first Hearns Leonard. And <laughs> I came I came home. And I stayed up till three or four in the morning writing an account of it. And I went and handed it that to the local um, alternative newspaper for them to take a look at. And I never heard back from them. I heard back three years later from like they had like a new editor and some guy came in and was like, oh, there's this thing here. Obviously, we can't use it. But, you know, you look like you can write a little bit. And um, and. You know, so boxing, boxing was one of the things that I watched, enjoyed, knew about, um, uh, wrote about. Was that the first thing that you ever submitted in terms of your writing? Yes. Yeah. That was the first thing I ever submitted. That's fascinating. Yeah. I had no idea about that. Or the ladies handbag yeah. origin. Wow. Yeah. So... Well, we can do it two ways. We can jump to your amazing profile of Muhammad Ali and the mm -hmm. funeral. Uh -huh. Or what other boxers have you profiled? What are, or what are the boxers that you've profiled that have jumped out at you as... as um... Well, um, so for... There was a... I actually, um, in the uh, early 90s, I had a uh, contract with Sports Illustrated. Long before, long before my ESPN days, um, long before I even got rolling uh, as a writer over at GQ under uh, under David Granger, um, but I had a I had a contract with um, I had a dual contract with Life Magazine, which had existed at the time and had stories, and Sports Illustrated, and I wrote mostly about boxing for Sports Illustrated. I wrote um, about uh, Pernell Whitaker. I wrote about uh, Evander Holyfield, um, and I, the favorite of those pieces that I wrote, I wrote about George Benton, um, you know the the great the great trainer. And we we, we got, had Michael Bent on, and Bent's trainer for a time was George Benton. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was just a. I still remember the way he talked. He had that <laughs> that, that kind of voice, and he just would just everything he said was pure poetry because of that voice. <laughs> <laughs> he was fantastic. I loved I loved him. Huh. He, I mean, he he brought you know he brought the sensibility of a, of a jazz musician to boxing, mm. and you know. And, you know, and of course, I knew about him because I was weirdly schooled on, you know, late 50s, early 60s middleweights. Mm. So I knew I knew, you know, um, that he was, you know, known way back then as a, as the defensive master, you know, and that he he couldn't get a title fight because people were afraid of him. And also because, you know, defensive masters and Philly fighters in general you know, weren't, weren't great box office. 
Mm. Well, and you're right. Like Michael Bent, he he quoted Benton. Bent became a sparring partner for Evander Holyfield. And yeah. Benton said to him the first time they sparred, I can't do the impersonation that you did. But he said, yeah. when I watch the two of you spar, I can't tell who the champion is. And it completely changed Bent's life hearing that, yeah. that he could be confused for somebody important. Right. Right. It's kind of the first time he'd experienced that in his adult life. Well, he was a he was a, a great person to, you know, write a, write about and you know, and his you know, his his offspring was Purnell. Yeah. You know. Um he he you know, Purnell was obviously the, I, I think of our time probably the I don't I mean pre pre Mayweather was probably the greatest, you know, the greatest defensive defensive fighter sure. of our era. Um, Floyd, I guess, has taken taken that mantle over, and um, amazingly enough, has managed to um, somehow parlay um, that skill into um, huge stardom that defensive defensive uh, fighters usually don't grab, and he's done that by playing the villain, which is kind of an amazing, an amazingly smart way of of maximizing uh his earning potential i heard uh, somebody put it that he was the most exciting fighter in the history of boxing until he stepped in the ring yeah right exactly exactly brilliant and it was really it was really interesting watching him against mcgregor of course because <laughs> right. you know i mean number one there was that that the terrible realization that mcgregor couldn't break an egg and True. and that and that he was going to have to, you know, go on the offense to just to get this guy out of there. Mm. You know. Did you profile Tyson at any point? I did. Did you I, spend time with him? Yeah, I spent I spent I spent time with Mike when um Mike was in jail. Really? Yeah, for Esquire. We did a we did a a, a cover story um on that incarnation of Tyson. Um and I went to Maryland and, and the thing is I didn't, I didn't spend really much time with Mike, you know, at all. He felt, I think that he felt uh, kindly disposed to the magazine because of Pete Hamill's stories about him. Right. Um, but so I went, I went for the photo. It was this beautiful photo that was on the cover of magazine of him, of him kissing his child. Oh, I remember. Yeah. Yeah. And so Holding child. Yeah, holding it, holding his child. It was, I mean, it was this gorgeous photo. And, you know, and I went, I went for the photo shoot and he was married at the time to, um, his wife. And, and this is going to sound terrible. I forget her name. His Monica wife. Turner. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was that. That's exactly who it was. And, um, so he was there with his, his children, uh, in the, you know, the, the meeting room, um, of the jail and it was where they were going to take the picture. And, and of course the, I mean, the odd thing about it was that, um, he was there, but he was dressed for an Esquire photo shoot at the yeah. same time, which was, you know, which was, you know, obviously very strange. He was, you know, there in a turtleneck and gold pants and dress shoes, but he was a prisoner. Fascinating. Yeah. So I mean, so I've written, I've written, um, you know, a bunch of a bunch of pieces, um, you know, on 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 boxing, and that really is is the thing that, um, you know, as a sports writer, you know, I've always kind of considered, you know, my specialty. It's the thing I grew up with. Is there something about boxers that 
there's that saying the four corners thing. I think I don't know if Max Kellerman invented it, but it's the idea that if there's a great soccer game on one corner and a baseball game on another and somebody's dunking a basketball on a third mm-hmm. corner and there's a fight that breaks out on the fourth corner, where does the crowd go? Right. Yeah. To, yeah, of course. Uh, and I think that that's it. I mean, just, but just as a, you know, as a writer, um, I mean, the thing about, the thing about, you know, boxing is, is that it's, I mean, you know, I mean, it's, it is what it, you know, it really is what it is. It's, um, you know, it's not, it's not a symbolic battle. Right. I mean, every, every other sport is basically a symbolic battle. Boxing is not, you know, it's, it is, it's, it is the real, the genuine thing. I mean, what you are seeing is what's, you know, what's really happening. There's two guys, they're trying to, they're trying to knock each other out. And, um, so, I mean, that's just always what a, appealed to me about it is, is that if you, if you simply write about what's happening in the ring, you have your story. <laughs> Right. You know, you don't you don't really need to find you know, you don't really need to talk to somebody in the, you know, in the locker room or, or find out what was happening there because right. what was happening there is enough. Why do you think in, in Tyson's era he was able to captivate the culture? I I wonder, like Ali, if he had the most famous face on Earth for a brief period of time. I just wonder if from your sense of spending time with him, why you think that might be? Well, because I think that, I think that, um, I think that Mike was, uh, unique as a fighter in that, I mean, he, he wasn't just skilled and he wasn't just fast and he wasn't just powerful. He was violent. Yeah. And, and, and I think that he brought a level of violence to the ring that, you know, to, to be honest with you, I don't think that people had, had seen before. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think that, that maybe had, they had seen it in the, in some of the lower, uh, weight classes. Certainly you saw it with Duran, but as, as a heavyweight and as, especially as an heir to Muhammad Ali's mantle, I mean, he, he changed the game that way. Just, I mean, Ali changed the game by introducing the whole idea that, that heavyweight fighter could, you know, quote unquote dance, right. you know, that, you know, you went to see his fights for you know, for grace and, you know, balletic motion. I mean, you went, you went to Tyson's fights for violence. I mean, Tyson, Tyson was the, the one fighter in, in, in my recollection where, you know, if, if his fights lasted 30 seconds, you didn't feel ripped off. You felt you got exactly what you came for. I mean, you wanted to see, you know, it was, it was boxing. It was boxing with, uh, you know, with, um, you know, the, the poetry sort of ripped off, mm-hmm. you know, um, he, he went in there, he, you know, he, the towel, the cut towel, the, the no socks, the, the, you know, the, he brought back, he brought back black boxing shoes. <laughs> he was, you know, at the time there was nobody at post Ali. Every, everybody wore, you know, white, white right. boxing shoes. He, he wore black ones again. And, uh, you know, and he went in there and brought a level of, of violence and fear. And I think that that was, you know, it was the, it was, this was the early eighties. So I think it really, it really fit in. Um, you know, he was a hero and and villain both. 
and you know he he was he was uh he was new he was new on the horizon at least for heavyweight and i remember as a little kid like sometimes you're seeing these athletes and they're not talking so i remember imagining what does michael jordan's voice sound like what does yeah. muhammad ali's voice sound like and after learning what they sounded like like learning about them through interviews, which was new for me with sports because you're getting ingratiated to how it works. And like you, I had two brothers, 10 and seven years older. So I didn't want to embarrass myself by asking a stupid question. Right. But the first time you hear Mike Tyson's voice or sure. the first time you see him knock somebody out and go back to his corner and kiss an old white guy on the mouth, right. I thought, this is very different. I don't know what's happening here, but this isn't right. what the other athletes are doing. And I don't know why. And it was, it was, it was very different. And so, and so like, sort of like the level of, I mean, there was lots of, I mean, I, I, you know, you wonder, you wonder how Tyson would be, would be looked at, would be looked at now. Yeah. Um, because I mean, to, to me at the time it was like, oh, he's, he's compensating, you know, I mean, there sure. was, there was that, but it was all, you know, in terms of, in terms of, you know, the political, racial, and gender equation that was, you know, going on every time Tyson entered the ring, you know, all that just made it, it just made it electric. It made the violence electric and the violence made those other things electric. Well, it kind of reminds me a bit of, uh, I, I'm a big fan of old cinema and, and to read about some of the stars from that era, like Marlon Brando. One of the things that still, I, I don't understand how this is true, but he was quite open about being bisexual as a young man. I think there's a quote where he openly says, yeah, I've sucked some dick. Like, so what? Yeah. And right. I'm like, right. you have Rock Hudson and, and all of these very famous people deathly afraid that anybody even suggests that they're right. homosexual. I'm even Liberace on that level of ostentatiousness. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Like, Why does Brando get a pass where it's just sort of matter of fact dismissed? Like, why not? Like it's Brando, because he brought yeah, because Bra and Brando was because he brought you know I mean his brand was tortured masculinity, right? So right. Uh, you know I mean that was that was kind of it was kind of um the subtext of 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 Tyson I thought. Well, and and I wonder what you made. I I interviewed him for Amazon for one of their Kindle singles, and uh -huh. in his memoir. He made a one mention, just half, almost just one sentence, where he said, "I was abducted and somebody attempted to molest me when I was a little boy and first moved yeah. to Brownsville." And then he moved away for the rest of the book, and right. for a whole year until I was able to arrange the meeting, nobody brought up attempted. How does one yeah. attempt right. to molest right. you? And I asked him, and he confirmed that he was. Right. And before that, I had a chance to type it up and release it. He went on the radio and volunteered the information, and it uh -huh. went mobile. Right. And he became sort of recontextualized to an extent as a victim of sex abuse as much as a perpetrator of sex, sexual right. abuse. Right. But I thought it kind of was a, a certain sort of Rosetta Stone into his character that made a lot of things quite obvious about him, I it thought. It's it. Very much so. Um, so could we go to what it was like for you? I mean, and I, I, I thought maybe we could compare it a little bit to 
you did this incredible profile that was enormously well received on Muhammad Ali's funeral. Right. And now we have, I was just talking to Thomas Hauser about this the other day at lunch. Um, Kobe Bryant's death seems like the closest thing to Ali's death. And yet there are all these odd differences that are either being swept under the rug or you shouldn't bring it up or whatever. But yeah, I mean, I mean, this, this, this question that has, that has arisen about like, whether, you know, we as journalists have the right to, to bring up, you know, what Kobe, um, you know, was accused to and what he admitted to, um, you know, what now 17, 17 years ago is, uh, is really, it's really, it's really an interesting, it's really an interesting question to me, but it's, it's real. I mean, all of, all of these, all of these questions, I mean, I mean, putting, putting Ali aside, because I think that the Ali story and, and, um, you know, the, the Kobe story are very different in, in not just in who they were, but also in, and, you know, and how they died. I mean, Kobe was, Kobe was, you know, died in a, in a tragic accident at the, you know, in his still in, not in his prime, but still in his youth as a man sure. and as a father. Uh, whereas Ali had, you know, had been passed, had been passing out of, you know, public view for, you know, a long time by that time. Um, so I think that, I think that they're two, they're two really different things, but this, this question of, of, who, you know, who, you know, men who, you know, have either been accused of crimes against women or who have admitted to crimes against women or who have been convicted of crimes against women, you know, who, how do we weigh that in, in terms of, of, of their, you know, of their posterity, posterity, especially if they're athletes is really interesting. I mean, for instance, I mean, you know, I mean, Mike Tyson's a, a, he's a convicted rapist. Yeah. Um, and you know, yet he has, you know, has this sort of an unlikely second career as this, it's kind of a comedian <laughs> and as a, yeah. and as a, as a, I mean, almost as like a harmless character and, and kitsch, right? He's become yeah, kitsch. Right. He's become, you know, he's become kitsch. And, and I think that, you know, kitsch has, has made him, um, powerless enough or something that we can, that we can sort of accept him again. Mm. Whereas, whereas Kobe, I mean, I mean, it's what's, what's happening now is that, I mean, you can watch people making decisions about this man's posterity sort of live on Twitter, like every day. Right. I mean, this is, this is, um, a conversation that is, is not, you know, going away anytime soon. Well, and it strikes me, I mean, to your point, I mean, boxing has a, a long list of names of people where part of the legacy is some run-ins with the law and often, right. you know, right. Sugar, Sugar Robinson beat his wife who was pregnant with his child where he lost the child. Um, F. Scott Fitzgerald beat up his girlfriend after Zelda uh, attacked her, and that's why they broke up. Uh, John Lennon went on record to say that he was a serial uh, woman hitter, in quotes. Yes, right, and right. I don't hear this brought up very much because it really conflicts with how much we like these people, sure. it seems. Yeah, but and that's and that's happening with Kobe, you know, live. 
Right. right. I think with Tyson, too, where, you know, as he becomes a cuddly figure, which was always a part of his personality before, the, I think, the rape and, and those sort of things, we've kind of let him back into that role a little bit of this right. sweet, innocuous pothead. Right. <laughs> like, uh, it, it's fascinating to me. But but with Ali, what was it like covering an event like that where it was like it, it felt like our version of Nelson Mandela had like a secular saint had died? Yeah, I mean, that was the I mean, so that story was was one of the most rewarding stories I've ever reported hmm. because for most of the people in it handling and protecting Muhammad Ali's body was the biggest thing they'd ever done in their lives. Wow. Hmm. And I mean, other than, you know, other than the, the, the great, you know, mysteries of marriage and birth, you know, and, 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 you know, and they were not, celebrities they were not used to or inured to um answering questions about it in many cases the question that i asked them was the first question that ever gotten from anybody wow and so and so it was like the story that i did in my in my life where I did not have to answer questions. I did not have to ask questions. Mm. All I had to say was, tell me what you did at Muhammad Ali's funeral. And then like an hour and a half later I would turn off my tape recorder. <laughs> and it was it was just the most remarkable thing. And and I mean I I, I got chills listening to him then. I get chills talking about it now. And when I was writing a piece in my, the first draft was all, I was all like over intellectualizing everything. And, you know, it was, I had, I, you know, I had all these, I had this, all this incredible material. And I, I think I had written 2,500 words at one point without mentioning any of any of the interviews I'd had, you know, and I, and I had endless amounts of interviews and and I was just like, you know, I called my editor and he was just, I was like, you know, I I don't, I don't know, you know, how to structure this. I have so much stuff. I don't know what to do with it. Uh He was just like, so he goes, I remember you telling me that like every time you talk to somebody, you got chills. It's just like, you know, Use that, you know, follow the chills. Mm-hmm. And and that's what and that's what I, I did in the story. You know, I um I followed the chills. And um and so I I you know I got I, I just wrote the stuff that that really affected me as a listener when these when these people were telling their stories and it was amazing. Well, you sound like Abraham Zapruder, just point the camera at the target and we don't really give a fuck about the cinematography. This is yeah. fantastically right. interesting. Right, right. It was, uh, it was really, it was really remarkable. Um, and you know, 
you know, I mean, I, I can, you know, I still remember, you know, you know, talking, talking to the, to the, um, to the imam who, you know, washed Ali's body and, and just the, the care that he brought to that process was the most amazing thing. And that's what, that's what started the story for me. Um, when I was, God, when I was working for Esquire, I did a story on, um, on John Walker Lind, uh, the so-called American Taliban. Hmm. And I, um, I, I sought out and found the, um, the Imam who, um, counseled him in prison. And so when Ali died, I mean, like right after the day after the day after Ali died in 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 twenty sixteen, I called my friend Shaquille and said, you know, so tell me what happens now. And we were on the phone for almost an hour, and he went through the entire um, purification ceremony and what what would be happening with Ali's body at this moment as we spoke. And as soon as he told me that, I was like, oh, I'm I'm doing this story. Wow. And, you know, everything else was just a was just a matter of 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 getting people to talk. And like I said, I mean, I honestly thought that I was going to have trouble getting people to talk, that I was going to have to convince people to talk to me. It was the exact opposite. It was just like, tell me what happened. And then just they just went. It was just a, it was the most beautiful thing. I haven't talked to many people that knew Ali intimately, and I, I only know a couple in particular, like Hauser being his biographer and Leon Gast making When We Were Kings, yeah. who I was friendly with. And it's amazing to me how no matter who the, who these people are that met him, like so yeah. much as met him, let alone knew him, yeah. just their face lights up with such right. joy. Yeah, yeah. Like I very, don't very, – Very, very much so. And – um the guy that the guy that I talked to who knew Ali living um, more than anyone else was this guy John Ramsey in um, in 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 Louisville. He was you know a, a guy that um, he was a, like a kid in Louisville who Ali just sort of pointed at and he was like I think he was trying to get Ali's autograph or something. He was just a kind of a Kind of a kid, an alley, you know. Oh, yeah, he came up and did an alley impression for Ali. White kid in Louisville. And Ali was like, mm-hmm. you know, and he just pointed to him and just kind of recognized him and, and brought him in. And they were they were friends, you know, until until Ali's death. And and that what you just described was exactly what you saw when you saw uh, you know, John's face. Well, it's funny. I was watching a documentary about Michael Jackson after the HBO one. Yeah. I found an older one that Louis Theroux did for the BBC while he was still alive. And he, to get in with the Jackson family, met um, Michael's like private magician, this guy uh-huh. named Majest- something majestic, <laughs> like yeah. with a K. Like it was yeah, a big yeah. deal, with a K. Yeah, yeah. And majestic had infiltrated michael jackson because michael had met ali and majestic had been ali's official 
magician. Like the, court, throughout... like the court magician? Well, that's just it. It yeah, was yeah, like, yeah. like, who the hell has a, a an official magician? Like, what does that even mean? Are you paid for that job? Like, how does it work? Well, one of the, I mean, one of the great um, magazine stories of all time is Gary Smith's story from Sports Illustrated late 80s on, you know, Ali's entourage. I don't know if you've ever read it. It's, it's God, I mean, I mean, that was one of the things that was one of the, when, when I was just getting started as a journalist at the, t- at the time. And, you know, that, that story just completely blew my mind. It was so, be- it was so beautiful. He's and, very special, that guy Smith. Like I miss yeah, his stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. Very much so. Well, and so, I mean, with, with you, I think I, I first heard you mentioned, I think with Wright Thompson, I'm f- friendly with him, and he mentioned the falling man. And so I find it interesting that in your career, you've been able to cover these events, not just the specific event, but like the resounding impact it has on American culture after as well. Yeah. And like, what was so? I mean, like, with that versus which, like, I, I find that one a hard one to talk about almost because, like, yeah. my. My ex-wife, both her parents, one of them was in a tower, survived. The other was a few blocks away, desperately trying to find her. Right. Um, I'm from 3,000 miles away, but that's how I learned about the event was through through people in my life that got close to me as much as the media. Yeah. Um, but then you have something that's so wonderful to talk about that almost has this incredible, magical sense of purchase on the culture with Mr. Rogers. Yeah, and it's it's interesting talking to you right now um, about Ali because, you know, I think, um, you know, now, especially, you know, on the on the back end of, of promoting the, the Mr. Rogers movie, but I, I, I can't help but think of Ali in terms of of you know, of Fred Rogers and, you know, people, you know, people who you know, were aware that they had the ability to bring something to other people's lives just by just by their presence, just by just by recognizing, you know, the stranger, and therefore were under the obligation to do that. Um, I mean, I think that that's the thing that that Fred and and you know Ali brought to you know, a lot of just day-to-day interactions was that they they knew what people wanted from them and they they therefore sort of dedicated themselves to providing that to people as vessels of grace. And uh, so I, I look I look at them, you know, in somewhat the same way. Well, I mean, I watched that. I can't watch that. I think it's the Emmy Awards where he gets some kind of yeah. lifetime achievement. Right. And that that goddamn pernicious trick he has of saying, I'll keep the time while you think of people yeah. who love yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. What, an, what a malevolent means of directly <laughs> forcing tears from everybody you know. Yeah. I mean, the, I, I've never seen anybody do that to people before. Yeah. And that's, you know, I mean... Yeah, the thing about the thing about Fred, um, that's you know also 
interesting um is that i mean so you don't do that you can't do that without power right you know? and that's a that's a that's a power move but but fred was, fred was <laughs> yeah so fred was not you know i mean and i think that the movie the tom, you know the tom hanks movie that and and tom's performance really captures that well you know he was a, a soft-spoken man but he was definitely not a soft man and and he was more uh, a person who had decided to use his power for good rather than a, um, you know what some people sometimes confuse him of being, which is a, a passive person. Mm. He was very much not that. Well, and he kind of reminded me after after Robin Williams' suicide, learning details about his childhood again somebody brought a lot of joy to people's lives yeah and yet seemed to struggle with depression and insecurity throughout his life you found this strain of like fred who i never knew came from affluence Mm -hmm. right um robin williams with toy soldiers being this private inner sanctum that he would only share with the very few select few to know that he kind of lived in this little kid world a lot right um yeah and i I think that i think that you know with with fred and you know the thing that the thing that connects listen a lot of a lot of people who become um famous and a lot of people who become you know um centers of you know hives of human activity uh is loneliness Mm. i mean fred i mean the great you know pervasive thing that fred talks about from his childhood is loneliness right. and um you know and i think that robin williams was was not so was not so different there profoundly lonely yeah, you're absolutely it, right michael jackson too i mean a lot right. of these people on the world stage yeah and you know michael jackson i think was 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 lonely because he was you know he was actually part of you know he was part of a big family but he was singled out within that family to be this person you know he was i mean starting with meal ticket and going on to you know every other sort of variation of that he could be was was fred somebody was he pulling those power moves on you periodically because it sounds like from your article i mean i think you almost open it if if memory serves i think i reread it about six months ago but going for a swim with fred and seeing him naked as somebody who grew up with Fred Rogers, it was to return to the piece to keep reading. Because I was just imagining, how could anybody survive that? I, I just, <laughs> just emotionally, I just can't yeah, deal it's with a, see, it's, like, it's more than seeing your parents naked or, or you know. Right, you're, not, you're definitely, yeah, yeah, right. Like, you know, I mean. Yeah, you're not supposed to see your parents naked, right? Isn't that the isn't I mean that's even in the Bible, I think, somewhere. But um but I think that, you know, that Fred was Fred was definitely um you know willing so I mean so you know basically asking people to um take a, a minute of silence to remember those who love them into being, you know, is like you know, sort of asking me about, you know, my childhood stuffed toy, you know, old rabbit, you know, those are, those are power moves. But at the same time, um, you know, standing there naked in front of a journalist is definitely a decidedly 
you know, it goes to, it tacks to the opposite direction. It's a it's not a power move. In fact, it's a it's a move of, you know, of nakedness and exposure that, you know, that he risked. You know, I mean, he Fred took a, Fred took a lot of, um, I think, risks, you know, as a as a person. And I think that, you know, you know, he took a he risked power and I think he risked, you know, um, you know, real human nakedness as well. Well, and even even just that philosophy, it's funny as you're grasping for some some kind of salvation in dark moment, and writers have a lot of them. Like what, what draws us to this is, I think, a lot of our demons as much as it's our virtues, sure. probably more sure. demons than virtues. But to hear that with every tragedy where you feel hopeless to look for the helpers, it just completely changed how I emotionally try to process things that I don't know how to deal with. And he's right. There's always helpers. There's always those people right. trying to help. Why had I never found that? Why is Fred Rogers offered deliverance on that? It was just amazing to me. Yeah. I mean, I think the thing, the th thing that, that Fred did that was, I mean, you know, so his lasting achievement was was being was being Fred, obviously. But at the same time, I mean, I think that his his sort of his his kind of like his theological achievement was um, coming up with a secular language for theologically derived thinking. Mm. So, you know, for instance, I mean, so he's really famous for saying, you know, you are special, you know, and, and people, you know, I think can confuse that, especially I think the right wing, you know, loves to say, well, it's all, you know, our, you know, he's, you know, he started giving participation trophies before, you know, before participation trophies were cool. But, yeah. I, you know, I think that what he was, he was really saying was that, you know, God loves you. And that's what he was saying that, you know, that you as a created being are beloved by God and that's why you're special, you know? And so he was on a, you know, on a secular TV program. So he didn't have to put the preamble. He didn't have to say, because God loves you, you're special. He just said you're special. But I think that the meaning that he was trying to communicate was, you know, was very much sacred in, um, in character. Well, it struck me with him, especially in your article for the first time, seeing a kind, getting a backstage pass into who he was instead of the guy who'd come into my television screen yeah. when my parents were working and I was alone and Fred kept me company, um, <clears throat> was that I had a number of friends. Most of my friends went to church and I was always struck by how unchristian their parents were in accordance yeah. with what they were learning. And right. with Fred, who didn't lecture me about his faith seems so Christian-like right, in right. a court. Like, like I'd always hear a, a, an act of goodwill or character where people say, it's very Christian of you. And I'd say, I can see Christ doing it. None of the Christians I know would do that kind of thing. Why do they get credit? He should get credit. Whereas right. Fred's the opposite. He seemed the best of what a Christian would be in so many instances. Yeah, without without saying so. right. Right. You know, without saying so. I mean, he he really he embodied he embodied it without without saying it. Um, you know, I mean, 
I was able to uh, uncover over the last summer a lot of the correspondence I had with Fred, and and you know, and there, and it is more um, overtly um, Christian in in nature, but you know, on TV, I mean, he he managed that thing that you just said. I mean, it was it was it was an atmosphere of devotion with puppets. You know, it was yeah, yeah. this crazy thing that he was able to do. Well, it reminds me when you talk about the, that everybody's special, I understand the conservative slamming it. It's an easy attack. You don't have to earn it, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But I always thought like, I've noticed that to, to supplement my income, I've, I've taught boxing to quite an array of people in New York city. I get a lot of, misfits as i am a misfit and we come together so it's a lot of academics or the children of people mm -hmm. and it's been a fascinating sociological experiment to see what people respond to in terms of assisting them in this silly accident of you want to learn how to defend yourself you want to learn how to feel safe yeah in the and nothing critical like what works is allowing somebody to feel safe to learn that they have value and and that you value the process of them acquiring those skills to go out in the world and feel safe to operate as a protector for other people who are vulnerable they're never predatory in what they why they want to learn the skills to defend themselves or to hurt somebody it's always to for safety and to offer that to others which i find a surprising revelation about human nature as opposed to i want to go out and hurt somebody now that i know how to do it yeah, um, you know, I mean, I think that the the long held knowledge amongst sports writers is that you know boxers as as subjects for stories and as interviews are you know often the you know the most quote unquote um, you know civilized of you know of all athletes. They they are they are you know generous. Um, they are um, you know, often, you know, speak from a, a very vulnerable place mm. and, um, you know, and the thing about, you know, boxers in that sort of distinguishes them from, from, you know, football players, basketball players, baseball players is that, you know, they're not, you know, anointed by the sports industry from the time they're seven years old and, you know, and, and, lauded and separated from the rest of children i mean you know nobody goes to a to a boxing gym unless you're either i mean you're kind of forced to go for some reason either you've got got beaten up or you've beaten somebody up and you get sent there by the by the authorities or something yep. you know and um and so there you know there's a there's a vulnerability built you know built into boxers that really no other to me, class of athletes have, um, and that's, you know, that's kind of makes writing about, about boxing really special and, and, and beautiful. I did a story, um, I guess it was, was it in 2016? I think. So I wrote about Jose Haro, mm -hmm. um, for ESPN, you know, and, and <clears throat> Jose, you know, had, had nearly, um, you know, killed a guy, you know, in the ring. And I went and um, met him out in, you know, in Utah. And 
accompanied him while he, um, you know, stocked shelves for uh, Pepsi. He worked for Pepsi, uh, bringing the, you know, bringing the product in from the truck, yeah. you know, bringing huge pallets of, of soft drinks into, you know, grocery stores at four o'clock in the morning and, and, and stocking them and, and just, you know, what other, what other athlete is doing that, right. <laughs> you know, and, you know, and Jose after, um, you know, doing such serious damage in the, you know, in the ring is, you know, has, I think he's gotten, I think he's been unable to get a fight pretty much since he's only gotten one fight, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I, I really, I really thought that, that my story was going to, uh, you know, help him. I, I thought it was going to help his career, but, um, for, you know, he had acquired this reputation of, you know, a person who, who would really hurt somebody in a ring. And, you know, he is, he is the gentlest, you know, most caring guy that, that you can imagine. And, you know, the most vulnerable guy you can imagine who's now sort of been quarantined from the game because of his association with, you know, um, you know, giving, you know, Daniel, Daniel Franco brain damage. Right. One of the, one of the things I wanted to ask you with, with regard to the, the Mr. Rogers documentary and the film is that you yourself personally with the Kevin Spacey article mm -hmm. were yourself in a position where, I mean, if that happened today mm -hmm. in cancel culture being what it is, I mean, I wonder what it was like for you. Cause I, I mean, is that the first real negative response you've had to anything you've written? Yeah, it was, um, you know, cause I had, and it was, you know, it came at us at, at a, you know, a time of, you know, great moment for me, you know, as a, as a writer, cause I had, I had basically have been, you know, I was shit, man. I was a, I was a handbag salesman who had become a journalist. I never went to J school or anything like that. And, and, you know, I had kicked around for a long time. Um, I had had this, you know, contract with life magazine and with, um, life, but I'm sorry, with, uh, with life magazine, with sports illustrated, but I, I really had trouble getting my, any pieces into sports illustrated. And then I, you know, I, I, I went to GQ and started working for David Granger and things just, things just rolled. I mean, I just, uh, you know, I, I started taking, you know, a lot of chances as a journalist and, um, you know, I won two national magazine awards and, you know, and it was just, you know, it wasn't a matter of like dealing with anything negative. It was like how positive I could go. How could I keep on topping myself? You know, how could I keep on, you know, um, doing, you know, doing some sort of, you know, extraordinary thing. And then I went to Esquire and the first thing I did was Kevin Spacey. And, you know, and I, I brought a certain degree of, you know, arrogance to that story. It was like, how can I keep on topping myself? You know, gee, now, you know, everybody, everybody wants to see what I'm going to do now that I'm at Esquire. Like, what am I going to do? And, and, and that's always the thing that, um, you know, kind of bothered me about the story is that it, it, you know, wasn't just, I don't know, rhetorically 
fraught with i mean it was it was like you know you know like you know when they say about fighters they're too cute sure you, know, you get too fancy oh he's being too cute well, I, was, I was too cute with that with that piece for for doing what i was doing you know i was revealing something that was essential um about my subject and i danced around it and i was too cute you know i i you know i was sort of like gee um look at me rather than hey let, let's 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 look at him you know and um and so i think that the story just was ill motivated from the start and but as as like to what would happen to me now i mean it was i was shocked by the response to it i had no idea i, I had no idea it was coming what and, happened can you describe that like like what is that process give me a tiktok of that thing gets published Kevin Spacey has a secret. How does it yeah. flow in? Well, it it went like this. Uh, the 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 three the th the three things that I remember about it were um, number one, I he was on. He went. The story had come just come out, and I knew that he had gotten copies of it, and he went on i think it was i think it was jay leno if i'm not mistaken and didn't mention the story and the story was not mentioned huh. <laughs> and you know and he was on the cover of esquire magazine and i knew right then that okay so he didn't he didn't appreciate it you huh. know at all but then the so the next morning I'm reading the New York Times and um, my parents were visiting and I was here in my in my home with my wife and my parents and I had you know I just come to Esquire magazine and I'm going through the Times and I see this this headline that says uh, Esquire and Hollywood in privacy dispute. Oh, I'm like I'm like whoa! What's wonder? I work for Esquire. I wonder what. Oh. <laughs> I wonder what this is. Oh, <laughs> and, no. and it was, it was, you know, his, um, his agency, you know, calling for a boycott of me and Esquire as far as like, you know, further, you know, celebrity, you know, kind of, of pieces, um, which was like a big part of what I did at the time. So there was that. And then, uh, I went up to New York and, I believe it was it was Access Hollywood. It was one of the the, the tabloid shows, and they interviewed me um, in David Granger's office. And it was just it was just one of those things that you know the, the minute the the reporter came in, I was like, oh my god, you know, this is not a friendly interview. This is a, this is a, this is a, you know, this is a, a, this is, she's looking to confront me and she hates my guts. You know, I had that, I had that, that feeling and, um, and I was fighting for my life all of a sudden, you know, I mean, I had, I had gone, you know, I'd come from nowhere and had, you know, you know, had sort of like a, a moment of, of, you know, stardom journalistic wise or, or fame. And now you know, I'd passed with one story into infamy mm -hmm. and, um, you know, it, it took me, um, you know, a long time to work my way out of that. And that was, you know, without a doubt, the context of 
my writing about Fred. So were you, were you at a place where you were cynical, bitter, defensive? Um, where were you at emotionally when you encounter Fred? I mean, at that stage in Fred's life where, I mean, he, he how old was he at that point when you met him? Fred was in his early 70s at the time, or maybe he was in his late 60s. He died in his early 70s. I knew him for five years before he died. So my, my guess he was he was he was in his late 60s. I'm thinking. I I thought of it earlier. I know this is a little uh, off to the side of what we're talking about, but did Fred have a weird email address? I was wondering, like, what? Was yeah, yeah, the... yeah. His his uh, email address was uh, zzz one four three at aol.com and the zzz was to uh signify that he uh was a man who slept soundly and the you know 143 was um the amount of was also was his weight you know he was a, he, as a fighter he was a fighter who never had to you know to shed weight you know, he stepped on the at the weigh in every day because he had a weigh in every day. You know, he stepped on the he stepped on the the scale. And I have no other source but him, but I did see it twice. He stepped on the scale and the needle went, you know, right to 143. Um, and, you know, 143 was also the amount of letters that uh, are required to say, I love you, you know, 143. So. Yeah, so he had that email address. It kills and, me. Uh, it, it, sorry to interrupt. It kills me that yesterday I interviewed Tommy Tomlinson about his book Elephant in the Room. Yeah, yeah, I, I interviewed Tommy um, at an event here in Atlanta a couple of weeks ago. Oh, great! He wonderful guy. And yeah, he's fantastic. It's a really I, good book too. It's really fantastic. Yeah, I, I didn't even think that Fred battled weight as a kid. That apparently sure. was really instrumental in sort of shaping who he became yeah, as an yeah. adult. Yeah, Fat Freddy. That fr God, yeah. That Freddie, yeah. So, did was there a sense of redemption with what happened with Fred and the response to that, which was what the biggest story Esquire ever did at that time, wasn't it? Or, um, I think it got more. It got more um, letters to the editor than any other piece, and I'm talking about like you know, they, it got actual letters. It got you know, I think it got, I don't know. I think it got, in addition to whatever it was got online, you know, which was a, online was a fledging, you know, fledgling business back then. But um, it got like, I, I think like 300 actual, you know, letters oh. and uh, which is a lot, you know, sure. and. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, you know, was there a sense of redemption? No, um, there was a, definitely a sense of like I had work to do. You know, um, you know, I mean, the thing that, you know, and I've, I've said this before is that it wasn't it wasn't that I was cynical and it wasn't that I was bitter. It wasn't any of those things. It was that, you know, I was I was a hard I was having a hard time trusting myself as a writer because I I was like I said to you before, I was like this engine that ran on like a sense of like a sense of breaking boundaries and transgression. You know, I was like, what can I do to top myself? And, you know, and often, you know, at the time, you know, topping myself went, you know, meant laying into somebody, you know, or saying, saying something about 
someone that seemed, you know, sort of impermissible, you know, like I was giving myself permission to do the impermissible. That was like my brand. That's what I was doing. And, and that, you know, blew up in my face entirely, you know, on the Kevin Spacey story. And, and, you know, and it blew up in my, in my face in other ways. You know, I mean, I did a, I did a story on, on a a twin in Atlanta who killed his identical twin. And, you know, what the story, I mean, so he, he had gotten, um, off by claiming that the, it was an accidental death. And, you know, and I, I think that I, I proved conclusively, pretty conclusively that it was not an accidental death that he, that he was actually, in a, you know, he was actually had been abused, um, you know, by his, uh, twin brother his whole life and finally had had enough and killed and killed his brother yeah. but it was it was um you know it was incredibly um destructive to him and his his family and you know i remember i got a call from you know his mom and she was like how how did you, how could you do this you know how could you how could you this for a magazine story and of course i didn't see it that way i didn't think that i was doing it for a magazine story you know i thought that i was doing it to tell the truth in a magazine story but it you know it that kind of thing is just the kind of thing that it stuck with me and it stuck you know it sticks with all journalists it's it's a hard it's a really hard thing to do to presume to tell the truth about somebody else and so you know my basic I was questioning the, the, you know, the basic thing that I did as a journalist, which was, you know, going farther, uh, pushing. And um, Fred um, gave me another way to do things that, that, you know, that that basically that you could you could push, you could say what hasn't been said before, but you didn't have to do that necessarily as a matter of tearing somebody apart. And, you know, and that was the, that was the thing that, that I think that he, you know, the great, the great gift that he gave me as a journalist, he made, you know, goodness as interesting as badness. And, you know, I, but that's, it wasn't like, I was like, oh, you know, gee, I'm going to write just about goodness now. (laughs) Because the fact is, is that, you know, you know, human evil still exists and it's still a, it's still a really, um, perplexing mysterious um and necessary thing to write about so it wasn't like any of it wasn't like things went away but i i I do i do believe that i you know would not have written uh falling man the way i'd written it if i hadn't met fred Mm, that's interesting i hadn't thought of it as informing that piece but i can see that well and i wonder i mean obviously given spread died in february 2003 i started working on the piece right after fred died Huh. Wow. Yeah. Well, I, I wonder conversely, you know, Kevin Spacey, now people are aware of of all of the damage that he's done. And I wonder yeah. if if you looked at instead of the secret was not his sexual orientation, but his predatory nature with that sexual orientation. Not I'm not conflating the two, but I just mean. No, I know. I know what you mean. Uh, so so this, there's some, I've been thinking a lot about this lately. 
Um, because, number one, this was 1997, so, and you know, and, and he, you know, there it was well known at the time, or it was certainly whispered about at the time that he, you know, you know, had a preference for, you know, for young, young men that he would, you know, bring into the, into the production and, and they would be there, you know, as, you know, he would, they would be there because he was in a relationship with them or, or had, had some sort of thing with them. There was a, I mean, it's, that was, that was part of what, was happening with Kevin, you know, when I was writing about Kevin, but you know, there's, there's something that I think that we, we do as journalists that you can question yourself about later. So, so, you know, when I first went out to do the Kevin Spacey story, people were like, well, well, what are you going to do about the fact that, you know, Kevin's gay? How are you going to cover that in the piece? Yeah. And then when, you know, like other stories come, like when I went and did Fox News, you know, I, I went and did Roger Ailes in, in 2010. I did, I did Roger Ailes and, you know, and we took a, you know, I took a pretty big swing at, at, at Roger because, I wrote a story that was um, that sort of used the the rhetorical attack of Fox News in order to write about the you know the you know the head of Fox News. The story was called uh, you know why does why does Roger Ailes hate America? Right. And but I, I I missed the story that was right under my nose, which was that which was that you know Roger was. you know, sexually harassing and had created a culture of sexual harassment around his, around his, you know, his female talent. Mm -hmm. And, and so the story that I did, it might've been, it might've been, you know, kind of controversial at the time. And I might've thought that it was sort of brave, but you know, it actually did him a favor Interesting. And, huh. and, and, and I think that if you look at a lot of the big me too stories, like Matt Lauer, like everybody knew that Matt Lauer was quote unquote, a womanizer. Yeah. The fact that he was a rapist right. <laughs> or, 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 a, or a person who was, you know, was, was really, really, you know, committed to, to using his power to, you know, achieve, you know, sexual dominance or gratification, um, was not even, was not even thought about. Harvey Weinstein was well known. And there was a, there's a whole sub genre of Harvey Weinstein stories that characterize him as quote unquote, a bully. Sure. <laughs> and yet, and yet the, 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 you know, the, the culture of, of, of rape that had, you know, grown up around him was, was something that was, was deeply, you know, on the hush hush and was, you know, actively, actively quashed. And, and I think it's really worth, 
worth thinking about as journalists. You know, when you are when you are writing a story and you are committed to like telling like a like an un you know popular truth about a subject, you know, ask your ask yourself what is this person permitting you to see, and what is what is he not permitting you to see, yeah. and you know, and it's. I look at I look at you know a lot of the stories that have come out about about people who have really really systematically abused power and they get the trappings of that but they don't get the actual abuse of power and I, and I say this as a guy who who wrote about you know Donald Trump in 2000 I mean I did a I did a story about about Trump that you know you know, took in, you know, the hyperbolic, buffoonish nature of the guy without really, you know, seeing, you know, the darker side even of that. I remember I, I interviewed, I just did a chess book and because the chess match itself was not terribly compelling, I had to write around the story. And yeah. one of the people I interviewed was Harry Benson, who said the most interesting person he's ever met and the most interesting person he's ever photographed was Bobby Fischer. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, this guy's photographed everybody. Yeah. Was, was right beside RFK getting assassinated. Every president in, I, I think, I think 12 presidents he's photographed up close. And he showed me a bunch of photographs as we were talking and then Trump came up and I said, you, you got to Trump when Trump was only 30. How long did it take you? How many years did it take you before you thought he might run for president? And Benson is now 87 years old. And he said, years, two minutes. Mm -hmm. It's like, it was the same as meeting Adolf Hitler, whatever was the brass ring to go for, he was going yeah. for it. Right, right. And I've never met Trump, but you, you I think, have for yeah. this story. Was that your sense of him? Um, no, to be honest with you. Um and, and I didn't get I didn't get the sense I didn't get my I didn't get a true understanding of Trump until the story came out. Mm. Um it was after the story came out. Um because at the time <laughs> I went to saw I went and saw Donald Trump. I don't know, like two days after my mother had, who was you know in her eighties at the time, had open heart surgery in in Florida, oh. and I was down there. I was down there to visit my mom, and he, um, you know, I saw him at Mar-a-Lago, or you know, I mean, right on right on the heels of that, and he um, was two things. Um, I mean, he was, he was funny. Number one, he was, you know, he was funny. And, you know, I was out in the, on the golf course with him, with, with Ray Floyd. And he was, you know, his, his patter was so absurd that I, I, I always thought that he was in on the joke. I mean, I just figured that he was in on the joke, you know? And, and the other thing is that, you know, he called me after my mother's operation and asked how she was doing and I was, and you know, and we went and, and I went and saw him at Mar-a-Lago and I saw his, his mom and he was like, ah, look at her. You know, we, 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 we worship these people and, and, 
you know, they're as, they're as vulnerable as anybody else, you know? And, and I just thought that he, Jesus. he, you know, he, that he had showed me this, this human side. And I was, I was, I was touched by it. And then, I don't know, like, I think like a month after the story came out, or even just a couple of weeks after the story came out. At the time, um, Esquire had this thing going on where it had the, the Esquire apartment. And the Esquire apartment was, was always a, an apartment that was up for sale in New York City that Esquire was, you know, had kind of would sponsor the sort of the decoration of and you know, the, the decoration, you know, being the prep for the sale. And, you know, Esquire was able to use that apartment for its parties for a little while. It was sort of like almost like a, like a kind of a, a Hefnerian move without the, without the woo grotto, you know? And, yeah. um, and so I went to, I went to, uh, this, this party at the, um, at the, at the Esquire apartment and Donald, Donald Trump walks in with this, you know, a, a small retinue and my, you know, my editor, David Granger was there and, uh, and I walked up to him and it's like, Hey Donald. And he, he looked at me not only like he didn't know me and had never met me, but as if I was, you know, carrying some sort of, you know, virus. Um, and I know that he liked the story because uh, he called David and said that he liked the story. But it was the thing that he had called David to say that he liked the story because he he didn't care about me anymore. <laughs> You're you know, I was done. I had, he had, you know, it was one, it was once again, I mean, you always hear the word transactional in terms of Trump sure. and, and he had completed his transaction with me. I was, I was, a, I was a nobody, completely a nobody to him. And, you know, he looked at David and looked at, he, he never looked at me. But he just looked at David. He had his eyes completely on David the whole time. He was like, yeah, look at him. Look at him. He's 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 great, isn't he? Jesus. And so he had he had started he had started wooing, you know, David Granger and trying to win his favor because he could still get stuff out of David. He couldn't get anything out of me anymore. And um, and that was that was that was the the moment where I knew who he was. But I didn't know I didn't know who he was when I was writing about him, because you you know because you don't have that experience. You have an ex, you have a an experience of of him you know being this um this sort of weird sort of hyperbolic maitre d figure right, at, right. you know at his at his at his home turf and um. And I didn't, I didn't really know. And I, I even like got it was in the early 2000s. Called him whenever his name came up. I always just called him the most insincere man I had ever met. And he was because <laughs> I was, I, I was, I was kind of. It was an education for me because I mean, here was the guy who had you know called me to ask how my mom was, and I just figured, okay, well that's a that's a human connection that, gee, people don't really don't really know this about donald trump and i didn't know donald trump until the other shoe dropped so there's some genius there in him being able to play people yeah sure. deep level i'll tell you a story yeah. I, think I, 
I think I saw it leaked. Um, I never published it, but I tried to get to Trump just before he declared his presidency, mm-hmm. declared that he was throwing his hat in and was going through Michael Cohen because I'd heard an anecdote that was an off the record conversation that was spoken on the record mm-hmm. that had an illustrator had seen it who passed it along to me. Mm-hmm. And it was that during Trump and Mike Tyson's partnership in, in Atlantic City, um, Tyson had gone up to Trump Tower and confronted him, and there was like a red velvet couch in Trump's office. I I don't know if that's true or if you've seen it or anything like that, but I don't remember it. I um, saw saw him. In, I, I I spent time with him in Florida, nowhere else. Okay, so Tyson confronts him. This is Tyson at his apex. Um, yeah. I guess it was when he was married to Robin Gibbons. So it's 1988 uh-huh. or 87 yeah. or 88. Confronts Trump. Mr. Trump, I'm hearing that you've slept with my wife. Is this true? And Trump reassures him endlessly. Mike, you're going to become the first billionaire athlete. I would never do this. I respect you. I respect your wife. Just we're going to we're going to do wonderful things. This would never happen. Tyson then cries himself to sleep on the couch. And when you think on on Trump's couch, on the red belt, Trump's couch. Yeah. And after this. After he falls asleep and you think the story's over, Trump says to the writer he's telling the story with a wink, and I was fucking her. Yeah. I wanted to approach him with that story to see if there was validity to it, but it would be interesting to it would be interesting to 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 approach Tyson about it, because I mean obviously you'll you'll never get it from Trump now, but Right. Right. Yeah. Um Tom, thank you so much for your time. I know we said it was going to be a 45-minute interview, so I really appreciate you allowing it to go a little long. Thank you. It was great talking to you. I, you know, these are, you know, these are, you know, stories that are sort of, you know, part of my life, and um, it's, it's, you know, it's interesting looking looking back on stories, whether it's, you know, Fred Rogers, um, Donald Trump, Kevin Spacey. You know, the story, you're done with the stories and the stories are printed, but the stories never end. No, you know, they, they keep on, they keep on going. Um, you know, my, the story that I wrote about Trump is a, a tiny little particle of a chapter and, you know, in his story, but you know, they, they, they never, they never quite stop. And, and the, I mean, this, the thing, the story that worked out in my life, the, in the most fortunate way is obviously the you know the fred rogers story well and i'm just going to say one other point is i remember louis theroux did an interview with jimmy savile while he was still alive before there was any recognition of the unbelievable amount of damage he perpetrated in the uk with hundreds of victims um many hospitalized um but louis did a follow-up documentary interviewing the victims to to ask them did yeah. you watch my first documentary and what did you think and one by one they all said poor louis he's just getting played by this serial predator right and i'd never had an experience with that except once which was a bit like kevin spacey for you which is uh you you you're familiar as anybody who's done a book is with we get a legal review we don't get fact check for a book yeah. right and i 
and I had one detail of Mike Tyson's counterpart in Cuba, Felix Sabone, a three-time Olympic champion. Uh-huh. I remember. It, I remember. I remember Felix Sabone. Everybody in Cuba when I went there at twenty, and I went to the gym where I'm surrounded by Olympic champions and coaches, and I said, "I want to meet the guy who was offered twenty-five million to fight Tyson," and they went, "Oh, he'd like you," and I went, "What do you? What do you mean? Like he likes foreigners or?" No, yeah. no, no, he'd like you. You'd be perfect. You're just his type. Uh-huh. I went, oh, he's he's gay? And they're like, of course he is. Everybody knows that. So I didn't go further than that. I wasn't trying to reference it homophobically in the book, but I thought it was yeah. interesting that this big, tough, six-foot-six champion, yeah. like Tyson, who has a lot of the, the mannerisms of a stereotype, stereotypical gay man, um, there was more symmetry that was kind of interesting. And the lawyer said, I, I, I think I'm getting this right, um, that there's only one state in America where you can libel somebody by outing them as, as homosexual. So we can't have it the way you have it. We need to massage it a little bit more. And I thought, wait a minute. So a guy who's turned down making $200 million as a professional boxer is going to defect from Cuba <laughs> as a 45-year-old man. Right. And go to the one state where he can sue me, probably selling 2,000 books, yeah. to, to stop the presses on this book. They right. said, well, it's unlikely, but nonetheless, I'm giving you advice. Possible. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. And, and, and the legal industry is, is there to uh, – possibility is probability for those guys, for sure. So I bring it up. The symmetry with Spacey is that I think about six months ago, a year ago, I read – some small stories by Cuban-American writers that were privy to this information that Felix Sabone had just been sent to prison for sexually assaulting a teenage male, I believe a 14-year-old that he sexually assaulted. Right. And the case is being buried in Cuba because of his status, and he's been let out. But I thought, well, okay, I don't want to out somebody. I'm not out to target anybody yeah. or make their life worse. But had I explored a little more what people meant when they said you're just his type right right possibly i could have helped raise awareness and recognition that victims who wouldn't have been victimized that might have been stopped in the same way that with kevin spacey if if some of those like i guess what i'm saying is and Louis said this with Jimmy Savile, that if you raise these issues there were a lot of rumors that customato was a pedophile like jerry sandusky and, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. A lot of rumors and smoke. I've never seen seen a legal complaint, but you're a complete fucking asshole to raise this question until you can prove it, and then you're helping save people and and yeah. doing something good. Yeah, I, I but I think that the I think that one of the the most interesting you know thing that the that the that the Me Too movement has done is that it's you know I, I think it's brought. You know, it's raised the bar for reporting. Um, it it has. I mean, you know, I I remember when I was doing ales. I mean, people people were trying to get me to get in touch with you know. Oh, you, know, you should call Gretchen Carlson. Mm. You know, and I mean, they didn't tell me why they were trying to get me to call Gretchen Carlson, and I did try to contact her, and she she wouldn't talk to me. Yeah. Um, but that that sort of that difference between like the story that like 
you're permitted to see the story that, quote unquote, everybody knows is happening and the story that that is really happening in terms of in terms of power. I mean, that's I mean, you're talking generally three different stories Mm. and the story that, you know, all too many journalists write is the the story that they're permitted to see. Yeah, it's it's I I yeah, I've just been confronted with there's a, they're making some people are making a documentary on Sabone and it's now heavily focused on the sexual assault and I just thought boy, it's 20 years ago. Right. Just as a kid I go over there to train and I just remember just being oh wow, like that's a, a quirky little fact yeah. about somebody. Yeah. 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 I thought with Kevin Spacey in in the context of your story uh quite quite different and a totally different era to be exploring the implications of what he was doing. Well, you know, at the, at the time, it, you know, I mean, you know, God, I mean, I mean, outing him was like the most controversial thing that um, I could have done even, you know, and, and that was, and that was just simply saying or imputing and it was definitely uh, it was definitely an imputation rather than a you know than anything of more substance than that but you know the you know imputing you know that he was that he was gay you know was was a, a really big deal yeah. um saying that he was engaged in you know inappropriate you know relationships with with people would have you know just was i I couldn't even imagine saying saying it at the time um but you know once again i just think that it wasn't it it was it was the way that that story was done i understand i I don't know i don't know if you've read it It, it's it's no i have alecky it's 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 preening on on my part and you know and i just think that was it was just it was just you know, if if you wanna if you wanna take on a question, you know, take on the question without sort of, you know, fainting at it to use a boxing term, you know. Well, I just, I mean, it just reminds me a bit of, I mean, Michael Jackson. There were endless rumors of what he was doing. Sure, endless rumors, and and just clearly that man had no sexual attraction whatsoever to adults, male or female from what I could see as a little yeah. kid growing up with him and he's writing hit songs called keep it in the closet. And I'm like, is this exactly what it looks like it is? And he's just winking at me with it. Yeah. Ultimately. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. So anyway, so I hope that, I, you know, in, in terms of, you know, this conversation in terms of, you know, I, I, you know, I hope that somebody hears it and says, you know, maybe I should go a little bit deeper. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, it's, it's so it's so easy to applaud yourself. Like if like if a guy's an asshole, it's so easy to applaud yourself just by calling him an asshole. Sure. You know, it's so easy to do that and go, oh, man, you know, OK, Roger Ailes is, you know, he's this guy. But but what was really, really happening was was something that. um you know, I did not, I did not catch. Well, I'm sure we're also motivated by, if you do that, people are guarded about you. Like part, I remember 
some people that I've reached out to that were difficult to talk to, they made inquiries to see if it was safe to talk to me. And when they'd come back and say, we've heard that you're a stand-up person, I thought, good for me that I have a reputation yeah, to stand right. up. But I also think, as I'm sure you have with many people, we see a lot of things when we're following people for, for some duration. And a yeah. lot of those things we leave out because if we express them, we'd be viewed as an asshole and other people would be weary of dealing with us. Which brings us back around to Kobe Bryant. So uh, right. there we go. There you go. Thanks so much, Tom. All right. All right. Man. Okay. It was good talking to you. Man. Likewise. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Tourist Information. The producers for this show are George Alarcon Swaby, Dolgan Media, myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler, and our audio editor is Anda Salaji. Thanks for listening.